Hi, today is November 5th, and um, we're going to talk about something slightly different. It's still going to be related somewhat to current events, and you'll, you'll figure that out, or I'll tell you that at the end of this lecture. Um, but what I want to talk about today is actually about um, typewriters and keyboards, which I guess is a current event, or some, certainly something that's tied to contemporary history, since um, when you write your comment on this lecture, you will most likely be doing it on a keyboard. Have you ever asked yourself why your keyboard looks the way it does? Why it does what it does? Well, there's a long history to that. Since the invention of movable type and the printing press, there have been a lot of thoughts and efforts that went into sort of making writing and typing synchronous. Not accidentally, those efforts were first recorded and first happened in countries where printed matter was in demand, right, which is tied to literacy. So there were early attempts at a writing machine in the US and in Britain. And one of the early surviving examples of a typewriter was actually a Danish one from 1865 by a man called Rasmus Halling Hansen. And what he produced is what is commonly referred to as the Hansen writing ball. And it doesn't look at all like a typewriter or a keyboard. In fact, it looks a lot more, if you've seen those ergonomic contraptions, right, that sort of is kind of round and that allows your fingers to move in a way that apparently is better for them. Um, all the keys in the Hansen writing ball are distributed over an orb and the typer's hands essentially um, type over that cylinder. Um, look look up Hansen writing ball. It's, it's pretty cool. And the only reason it might look weird to you is because we've gotten so used to a flat keyboard. Now, during the 19th century, there, there were many more innovations in typewriters. And um, as I said earlier, these, these happen mostly in the US and Europe because the, the, sort of the jobs for people taking notes, or the, note, the, 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 the kind of the job of a secretary, of a stenographer, were went hand in hand with the speeding up of of the economies and and industrialization. And so if you've got a greater number of people who are in jobs that require writing, there is an increasing pressure on innovating a particular job that is otherwise kind of essentially limited by the speed at which someone's hand can write. And so the machine, the typewriters were designed to increase that speed and efficiency. But so, so you've got a, a, a kind of a, a late 19th century innovation around which really there have only been four major and important improvements since the original commercial typewriter was developed in 1873. So the first major improvement was visible writing, right, which allows the typewriter to see what they're typing. Now, to us, that seems totally normal that we would be typing on a screen. But the contraption that would put a letter on a piece of paper originally was not, they were not together. The paper was somewhere else or certainly was not easy for the typewriter, the person who was typing, to see. So that was a major thing essentially to kind of tie the, the typing and being able to see what you're typing together. The second major innovation was the capital shift which allowed for upper and lower case characters. And you can imagine that that at a time when, you know, sort of upper case indicated the beginning of a, sen a sentence or a common name, as opposed to a noun, this would matter. 
Third major innovation was the power operation, essentially, you know, sort of making the typewriter not just a mechanical contraption, but an electrical one. And so this one would essentially increases the speed and the versatility of what the typist can do to the speed of electricity rather than the speed of your fingers. And last but really not least, proportional spacing was key and was it was the last innovation. And that one allowed the letters to be set proportionally and automatically. Before that, part of what the type what a typist, the human who would use the typewriter was in charge of was essentially setting where the letters would go, or essentially would not be able to do that. And so you'd have letters that were not always lined up correctly. Um, IBM, an American company, was responsible for the last two innovations. And in fact, a a large number of keyboard and typewriter um, innovations happened in the US. But that, again, has a lot to do with economic growth and the focus of economic growth at the time. IBM was also a major innovator in personal computers. And when you think of how personal computers were used at the onset, which was mostly to prepare written documents, not for processing data, it makes sense that this innovation, right, the innovation in personal computers, would be an innovation that would flow from the company that had already innovated to typewriters to speed up writing. Now, a big part of of the challenges that a mechanical typewriter presented, not not the electrical one, but a mechanical typewriter, um, was in figuring out what the optimal layout of the keyboard should be. Um, Because the levers that flipped up to type the letter on the page could very often become stuck. And they were, especially if there were sort of particular sequences of letters that were too close to each other and could become overused. Now, if you, um, if it's hard to visualize what I'm saying right now, um, stop this recording and go to go to YouTube and type old typewriter in and you'll see not just an image of a typewriter but you'll see it how it works and you'll see those levers so a, a static image of a typewriter may not may not be enough now computer keyboards don't use levers obviously but they're not unrelated to the keyboard you'll see on YouTube in fact you'll see that the layout of the letters on a typewriter is exactly the same as a lay- layout of the letters on your computer keyboard. <clears throat> and, and it's not alphabetical, especially if, if you're using an, an Anglo keyboard, the first letters from the left on your keyboard are gonna be Q-W-E-R-T-Y. Now, um, if you look at a French keyboard or a French typewriter, those are not the letters. The keyboard layout is essentially the way it is because of what economists call path-dependent development. American keyboards used to be arranged alphabetically, and, I mean, that seems logical, but it posed some serious technical problems. So the most commonly used keys were, um, you know, sort of would, would, if they were close to each other, would tangle up. Um, their mechanisms were just simply too close. Those levers would get stuck if the machine was not oiled properly the levers would get stuck or it would break. So as a result, the letters had to be arranged and that's where we end up with this Q-W-E-R-T-Y keyboard, which is, a QWERTY keyboard is named out of those characters in in that uh, upper row. In 
other non-English speaking areas, uh, slightly different layouts were chosen. And again, those reflect what the most commonly used characters are. Um, so in German, for example, Z is much more common than Y. So German speakers adopted the Quartz keyboard, Q-W-E-R-T-Z. Um, in other countries, new keys were added. So for example, in Quebec, the keys required to enter French accents were added to the classic QWERTY layout. But in France and Belgium, they don't use QWERTY. They use AZERTY, A-Z-E-R-T-Y, because that reflects the needs of the French language. And in Spain and Latin America, they also kept QWERTY, but they added ENE, the N with a tilde on top of it. So all of this, sort of those changes that the organization of those letters depends, is, is, is t completely 100% tied to the mechanics of the keyboard. The organization of those letters is a reflection of the mechanics, which no longer exist on your current keyboard. And yet there they are. And that is path development, right? We have gotten used, not you and I, but previous generations of humans who used mechanical typewriters got used to the letters being organized in a particular way. So that when typewriters move from being mechanical to electrical and then from electrical to being what we're using right now, digital, there is no point in changing the layout because we would have had to use, we have essentially had to relearn how to type. And there are certain paths that really determined which way we're going to go. And we are, you know, we are tied to a keyboard that is connected to a history that is technologically a couple of generations away from where we are now. I've always loved the fact that the keyboard you use it has a history that is tied to different technology. Okay, so this is all fascinating, right? In um, in our kind of alphabet using languages. But um, what if you wanted to use a keyword to type in Chinese? Chinese doesn't have an alphabet per se. It, it uses 50,000 characters. Well, how do you fit 50,000 characters on a keyboard? Well, you don't, or you try to, and then you have to innovate and make things a little bit easier. The Chinese typewriter owes a lot to Chinese librarians in the early 20th century who were obsessed with the question of how to design a faster way of organizing the Chinese library card catalogs, how to organize phone books and filing systems. So their concern was not necessarily in how to quickly type, but how to organize information in a more efficient way. And so this posed two challenges to our Chinese um, librarians and typists. One was to modernize the script so that it would require less unique characters. And that would eventually, later in the 1950s, get them to uh, a, a sort of developing keyboards that would help guess what word was most likely being sort of created with characters. That guessing innovation is quite likely the precursor to um, predictive text. So that, that predictive element of the modern Chinese typewriters that was sort of really developed in the 60s and 70s influenced the development of modern computer word processors in every language. And it most likely affected the development of computers themselves. So there's a, a link between language and computer processing and the logic of the processing. 
In the 1950s, the Chinese typists rearranged the character layout from a standard dictionary layout, so they rethought it, to a groups of common words and phrases. They rethought the logic of how the characters existed rather than following the, the, the way in which a dictionary would organize them, which essentially to look for the, the meaning of the, the character. They organized it in, in, in groups of, of, that were related to each other that people would most commonly use. So Chinese typewriter engineers were trying to make the most common characters accessible at the fastest speeds possible. And they were doing that with word prediction. And, and this arrangement was called, back then, the connected thought layout, which I love. And connected thought layout is a, very similar to predictive text, essentially thinking, like, what could you possibly mean and what word could follow this? So to get from 50,000 characters in Chinese script to the keyboard commonly used in like, Chinese typists today, um, that was not a straight line. So you can imagine there were multiple innovations. There were a couple of wrong turns, trials and errors. But, you know, it started with early Chinese typewriters that were enormous, that complex, um, and really hard to use. Um, they, you, that is sort of innovations and, 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 and human curiosity very rarely leaves us in a state of stasis. Effectively, um, they were going to continue to solve this problem to find, essentially to get us to predictive text on, on any keyboard, like the ones you're probably typing on now or on your phones. So the needs of the Chinese typewriters and librarians form the basis for a modern and abbreviated form of typing on our phones. Um, and I would like to suggest that perhaps it also um, is the origin of our abbreviated form of speaking. And I am looking at you, LOL and BRB and TFW and every other acronym that we currently use. I don't just want to talk about typewriters. Um, I, I want to tie this, this history of typewriters and keyboards to the story of the 1974 Imperial Typewriter Strike. Um, in May 1974, almost a thousand workers staged a walkout at four factories across Leicester, and this is in the, in the UK. Um, at the company, Imperial Typewriters, there were 39 Asian workers, and they all walked out and they stayed out. And 500 more workers followed them a few days later, and they soon reduced the factory output to 50% of normal. The strike was, organized, was an organized response to working conditions that were endured by the firm's mainly Asian workforce. Um, the Imperial Typewriters was brought um, by the was, was had been purchased by the multinational company Lytton Industries in 1968, and it had recruited heavily from from Leicester's Asian population, and it employed a high proportion of women. The white workers that remained at the firm were given special privilege by the mainly white shop stewards, and that racism essentially underpinned the labor organization that led to the strike. When the strike entered its 10th week, the factory closed for two weeks holiday and picketing was suspended. And at the end of July 1974, management issued notices firing most of the strikers. And eventually it closed down the factory rather than make even the minimum concessions to the strikers' demands. This is a sad ending to the strike. Not all strikes are successful. And it would take a little bit longer for the UK to essentially in institute anti-racism policies in its, in, in its labor laws. But 
the fact that one strike is not successful doesn't mean that strikes don't leave their mark and inspire change down the line. Last year's huge, unprecedented and successful graduate student strike at the University of California, you know, and it had impacts beyond California. It, it was important to graduate student and, and faculty strikes in the UK. And it wasn't, they're not entirely unrelated to current strikes happening among teachers unions in Washington and in Oregon, auto parts manufacturers on the, on the sort of Midwest and East Coast, or healthcare workers and actors right here in California again. Now, of course, the pandemic and technology upended many systems that provoke these kind of labor actions. But strikes are more often than not a response to systemic inequities. And, and I want you to think about that. People's response to systemic inequities will take a time. And then something is going to happen that, that essentially forces people to a breaking point and they will strike. And so if you see systemic inequities around you, organize. Know that it'll take time, but know that things don't stay the same forever. And when you write your comment on this lecture, have a thought for the Chinese librarians 100 or you know, maybe not so long, 80 years ago, to whom we owe the predictive text that may be helping you write this comment better or faster. Talk to you next week.